Welcome to Fides Podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is Jerry Serino and I'm your host. Fides is Latin for knowledge, faith, and truth. That's what we focus on this show. If you're interested in pro-America, pro-freedom, pro-liberty, pro-God, and pro-life, you've come to the right place. Thanks for listening. Now let's get right to it. Okay, hello and welcome to another edition of Feed Ace Podcast. My name is Jerry Serino and I am your host and I'm here with Talent on Loan from Rush. Um, you know, how, how many of you are, um, are, are, have been Beltway insiders, have been in the inside? We hear about the swamp, we hear about, you know, all the, the, the deep state, you hear about all this stuff and boy, I, I really think it's real. I think it's it's something that has impacted our country and caused so much, um, so many problems, so many challenges in this country. And um, it's very unfortunate when you look at the power grabs and the money uh, that, that goes on in Washington, D.C. Um, my guest today is Courtney Montgomery. And Courtney is a former insider uh, in Washington, and she is now a phenomenal um, political and societal, I guess you could say, uh, or current events pundit on all these issues. So Courtney, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I've seen lots of your stuff, lots of your, your posts, and, and you have some great articles um, on, uh, you know, on the in the political arena with a lot of the issues and events going on. I, I'm curious is how you got your start. Um, you know, were you always a conservative? What, what was your background? I uh, grew up in a small town. I've always liked politics. My dad's uh, actually a pastor. And so he's always listening to talk radio. So I kind of always just grew up listening to that a lot. Um, and so that kind of always got me curious. And so I was kind of always a nerd, basically. Um, so I ended up going to college. I was a history major, a political science minor. Um, my first job was teaching out in Hawaii. I was a high school history teacher, American history teacher, Hawaiian history. I had a lot of fun with the names and things there. Uh, but I did that for five years. And I think people say when you teach, you you really learn it maybe for the first time when you actually teach it because you're having to remember it for the kids and they're keeping you on your toes. Um, eventually, I got an opportunity to intern in Washington, D.C. for a National Christian Education Association uh, with members you know, all over the country. And so I went and interned there and that turned into a job. And so I was there for about four years. Uh, right there on C Street, if you know, kind of have a layout of D.C. Mm -hmm. and where that is. And we were right about four or five uh, doors down from the Republican National Committee and things. Um, so just being in the middle of D.C., that was during the Obama years. So 2010 to 2014. So right when you know everything was happening, the world yeah. was changing. Um, so it was just an interesting time to be in D.C. and to be right there, you know, in the room where it happens. As people say, um, just to kind of see what was going on behind the scenes and some people who were, you know, met with a guy named Mike Pence, who was just, you know, representative Mike Pence back then, but here right. he is today. Just kind of meeting a lot of people, you know, you know, 10 years ago, and now to see where everybody is, uh, it's been very interesting. So that's kind of the background of how I kind of got into politics in the first place. Excellent. That's a great background. And um, obviously, you know, you know, you'd sound like you have a, had a, have a family influence and that's always uh, really good and really strong. What's, um, you know, in the organization you were with when you were in DC, what were the issues that you were focused on? 
Uh, we were a national Christian education association. So we had affiliates, you know, across the country, a uh, few international. And so our job was to just basically have advocacy for our Christian schools in DC. So they're all over the country. So being aware of issues, any regulations, especially during the Obama era, they were going to affect Christian schools or homeschooling. We work with other groups like, you know, homeschool legal defense and people like that also Heritage Foundation. Um, so mostly religious liberty, school choice. Um, and for us, it wasn't so much about give us money. We actually, we don't want your money. We want the autonomy that our schools should be able to have without regulation from the government, um, as long as we're, you know, following the rules that everybody else is following. And so it was more a thing of we're here, but leave us alone. That was basically our message, you know, to Congress, basically. Yeah, give us give us our freedom, stay off our backs, protect our freedoms, which is what the uh, government is here to do: protect our freedoms and then stay the heck out of the way. Uh, so I want to I want to go through a few of your your articles that you've written, and we'll talk about um, at the end how everyone could find you on social media and your website and get it, get to these uh, to these articles, which are really good and, and really thought provoking. So your the first one I want you to just just give me a you know a brief overview of, and it, although I it's I could see it being very difficult to give a brief overview. Um, you wrote about the Trump presidency and what you you know what your thoughts were and your experiences. So so what's the crux of that article? And obviously people can go and read the whole thing. Uh, yeah, with the Trump presidency, you know, it was an interesting time. You know, I think for America, it was a reprieve. We just, we needed a break after eight years of Obama and all the regulations and all the major societal changes that have happened under his presidency. We just needed a break. And if we would have went right to Hillary Clinton, we might have really lost, you know, a lot of our a lot of our freedoms, really. Um, so I think, you know such a time as this type of thing that, you know, for him, me being the presidency, I think with Trump, the main thing was he had the right policy, but sometimes, you know, people are going to look at him and go, oh, he was such such a distraction. So the right, you know, the right policy, generally the right message, now the delivery of the message, you know, all the sparring with everyone in the world on Twitter and the Pope and whoever else, um, that wasn't helpful necessarily to the cause. But as far as policy, he got it right. And people look at, you know, George Bush and things that, you know, were done under his presidency. And it's like, but Donald Trump got things done. He mm -hmm. got things done, the things that he promised, you know, for the most part in the campaign that he could do without the courts, you know, blocking it, like Planned Parenthood, trying to defund it, but then the courts would put it back into play. Um, but he, you know, moving the capital of Jerusalem to Jerusalem, um, pro-life stuff. I mean, 100% most pro-life president, I think of our time, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the modern era. Um, the one thing I'll probably say as far as, you know, oh, could have done better. We were spending money, like we've been spending money for the last couple of presidencies, no matter who, Republican or Democrat. Uh, we definitely could have spent less money even prior to the pandemic. But as far as the economy, capital gains, you know, lowering the taxes, the Trump tax cuts, those were all things that Republicans supposed to do. And when he got in there, he actually did it. Um, and so all of the, you know, craziness of Twitter and everything aside, he got things done and he did keep most of his promises that he was able to keep. So as far as policy wise, you couldn't have asked for much more to actually get done because um, mm -hmm. he really didn't care. And that's the flip side, the good and the bad of Donald Trump yeah. is that he didn't care. And so he just got things done, you know, even fighting the swamp, people who hated what he was doing or hated him. He still got it done because he didn't care. So that was the good and the bad as well. But. Yeah, I, oh, I, I actually completely agree with you. I, I didn't mind as much his his sort of his style. I mean, yeah, there's probably things any president maybe wishes they could take take back or not say. But um, but, you know, to each his own. Everyone likes different personalities. But you're absolutely right. I mean, he got things done. He did things that we were told 
aren't, you can't do, you can't bring jobs back, can't bring manufacturing back, can't bring capital back. You can't do all this stuff. And he did it. You know, you, you know, all these things were really great. And I think people needed to really, really look at that and understand that. So really good. And, and to get more details, uh, you could read uh, um, her, art, her article called the Trump presidency. All right. So let's look at uh, something else. It's, it's uh, can be controversial, which I think everything these days is controversial. You could say hello to someone and, and you might be accused of uh, some type of ism. I don't know. But um, so your, your next article that I want to talk about is called reparations and board diversity quotas. So tell us about that article. Uh, yeah, two different issues, of course, right now in our country, obviously, it's very polarized. And every day there seems to be another you know, police incident and all those things kind of all run together. I think a lot of things, these policy things like reparations or quotas come from, well, things are so horrible, we have to fix it. OK, here's a solution. Give us this money. And basically all this stuff just comes down to money. Black, white, stop Asian hate. It just comes down to the money. You create this problem and then the solution is give us money. That's pretty much what it all boils down to. Um, those may not be put as you know, maybe simply as that. Um, with reparations, you know, for those of you, obviously this is not, this is the podcast. So I'm um, African-American woman. I'm raised in the South, born in South Carolina. I live two hours from where, you know, my ancestors were, you know, on a plantation. Graves are still there. The church is still there. So I think kind of like Tim Scott, you know, a home state senator, um, you know, I get it. If, you know, I get it. I understand it. It's, it's very real to me. We have family reunions, go through the history and the genealogy. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, the case for why you should have reparations, to me, it's just not there. Um, it's not there despite all of the horrible things that have happened in the past. You know, the reparations or whatever, this is not the solution. This is not going to fix the problem people say they want to get fixed. Um, you know, slavery is a global phenomenon. It happened all around the world. It just happened, you know, here in the U.S. Um, not to diminish what happened here, um, like somebody said, but we're the country that stopped it. You know, a great bit in the of the U.S. were the ones who say, okay, this is horrible. And we, and we made a change and we, and we shut it down. So um, I think, in, you know, and to say that reparations, you know, basically payments for people, descendants of who are slaves, you know, only 10% of people in the South who are white even own slaves. So when we say somebody needs to pay, who are we talking about? It was a pretty small part of society that actually even owned slaves. Um, you know, and with all the intermarriage, I know I'm actually in interracial marriage. Um, do I get money? Do I get half of a check because I'm married to a white person? Because my great grandmother, might she was white. So do I only get a fourth of a check? The how you the the just the intermixing of America makes that so difficult to figure out who would get checks. And to me, once the government or whoever said, oh, "Okay, we're going to do this," where would it end? There would be no end. It would just be. Mm-hmm. Because how can you put a price tag on what our ancestors went through? I know in our family, with all the genealogy, I mean, it was really horrific, terrible, terrible things that happened and are documented. We talked to people before they passed away who were older and had passed it on. It's in the state archives. I mean, it's, it's documented. Mm-hmm. But there is no amount of money, millions of dollars you could give me to pay for what those people went through. And so to even put a price tag on it, to me, even cheapens what they had to go through and their sacrifice and say, this $2 is gonna make me feel better about it. Um, there's just no end, I think, with that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it's not gonna change the past. It's not gonna undo it. And no one who's alive now was a victim of slavery. And you can kind of make some cause and effect. If this hadn't happened, maybe I would be high, you know, farther ahead in life, but we're so far removed from slavery. I just don't know how you figure that out and say that's what it is. Um, And just finally, moving money around, redistributing it, that doesn't get to the root problems that are in society, whether black or white or any other kind of culture, 
that money in and of itself is not going to buy you happiness or fix all the problems that you do or don't have. Um, it just comes back down to you as an individual doing what you need to do. You know, no matter how much money you have, that doesn't fix your problems. And so I think reparations, it's just a you know, means to an end for some people to you know, use race and issues in our country as a way to enrich themselves, really, um, and by votes, and, and bottom line, by votes. Like Democrats like Kamala Harris and some of them, they've kind of been wishy-washy on whether they want to do commissions to study it and set the groundwork to do it. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to money and buying votes. And to me, that just cheapens all that happens um, to all those people, you know. Um, so on reparations, obviously not in favor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but personally, I would benefit uh, from it, um, not in favor. Um, and when it comes to board diversity quotas, you know, it's one of those things where it sounds good. But I think I saw a graphic the other day and they had a difference between equity and equality. And I think Democrats and liberals and progressives are always pushing for equity. There should be three whites and three blacks. There should be this many black characters, this many white characters. And if it's not completely equal, then somehow, you know, everything's horrible. And it's like black people are only 12 or 13 percent of Americans. <laughs> so even if, you know, there's there's never going to be equity as far as there's enough black people to be on every corporate board or every organizational leadership, you know, chart or whatever. Um, but equality, I think Republicans and conservatives, we're going for equality of access, not equality, just making people be the same because you're a certain color. It comes down to, do you have access to this program? Are you aware of the program? There's internships in D.C. Can you afford to go to the internships and make there's you know, a way for you to have a program so you can be made aware of stuff? So it's more about providing uh, opportunities for equality um, and success, whether that's charter schools or uh, school choice, just generally or whatever, um, providing actual solutions, not just saying you're black, you're white. There you go. Get the job or go into college or whatever else. Um, there's been studies done. I know Thomas Sowell. I mean, he's you know brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, just studies on how you're not doing anyone any favors if they're not black or white or any other color, if they're not ready for the position, they haven't been trained, don't have the education or whatever, you're setting them up for failure by putting them in a place where they're not ready to be yet. Mm -hmm. And you're causing resentment from the other people who have lost out on opportunities because they weren't born the right color. So you're just doing reverse discrimination, which doesn't help anyone. So that's a really long answer in way to say that. No, that was that was so sensical. And and I'm a huge fan of Thomas Sowell as well. Uh, I, if I could have someone's brain, it would be his brain, I think. Um, but, you know, no, it's it just so you make so much sense, you know, and, and it makes me want to say, well, would LeBron James get a reparations check? Right. And, you know, and would would your his children get a reparations check? And you know, are in your point about equity and equality, um, are they prepared to say that the NBA needs to have equal number of white people in it? I don't, I want the best talent. I don't care what color you are, but you know, it, it's got to go both ways if they want to do that. And I don't want it to go either way. I want the best people there to get the job. And, um, by the way, it looks like you're doing pretty darn well. So, um, <laughs> you know, you haven't needed, uh, us white people to give you anything. So, um, so let's look at the, uh, <laughs> the next, the next article, um, you, you had in, uh, A to Z, the legacy of president Obama. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. And I, I think as a black person, and I, I think, and I know with conservatives and Republicans is always like, 
Obama, you know, equals the worst. And yes, he, yeah, as far as policy, as far as things that he tried to do, undoubtedly, yes, the worst. Um, I will say, you know, as a black person, I, at that point when he actually was became president, I still lived in Hawaii. That's his home state. That's where he's from. So, I mean, it was Hawaii all day. President Obama is the best thing that ever happened, you know, <laughs> in the history of the world. Um, and I will say, you know, for the split second, the moment after he became the president, even, you know, with all the stuff that happened, all the controversy, even before he got into the presidency, there's part of you as a black person that's like, wow, you know, I never thought this would happen. I never, mm -hmm. my great aunts, my grandparents, they never thought they'd live to see the day to see a black president. So for that split second, for that, you know, a couple minutes after you're like, wow, this, you know, this is, you know, this is great. This is on paper and it's hard history. The history the historian in me was like, this is, you know, not, not that it's great policy wise. I knew it was going to be horrible, but for, you know, but you are happy for that. And I think you're hopeful that maybe, like somebody said, that it won't be as bad as it thinks it's going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the next day you sign in the Mexico City policy, reversing, you know, and pro-life and all that stuff. So um, pretty quickly, obviously, any hope that people had, you know, hope and change, it was all going to be, you know, changed for the worst. And I think he really served as a kind of a transitional figure because there were things that Democrats wanted to do for years, tried to do for years, tried to say for years, but a white Democrat couldn't say those things. But a black Democrat who kind of had Teflon, who the media was going to get coverage for and say everything was wonderful, um, he could say it, he could do it. And so whether it was redefining marriage or a lot of the regulations that happened, he was laying the groundwork for other things. Uh, religious liberty that was attacked. I mean, you're suing nuns. What, what are we doing? You know, Hobby Lobby, all that stuff. Um, but he was able to do that and still kind of emerge as this wonderful, logical, reasoned person. And yes, he was, you know, great speaker or whatever, very articulate. But what he was saying was so radical, but because it just kind of droned on and on and on, people really weren't in the media covered for him so much. He was mm -hmm. able to accomplish and do so many things that really fundamentally changed American society, but just kind of slip it in. And you mm -hmm. almost didn't really notice it until it started kind of happening. And here we are, you know, these years later. So, um, you know, as far as for the left, I mean, he was able to do a lot of things, you know, and lay the, the fair share argument, are you paying the fair share? Some of those things that, you know, maybe Elizabeth Warren or whoever could say those things, but he had the opportunity to kind of lay the groundwork to do some of those things. So um, as far as the Obama presidency, it was as bad as everyone thought it was going to be. Um, and I think too, you know, as far as racial things in America, some of it, I will, I will say is I don't think it was his fault as far as you're a black president, so things are going to come up and they're going to you know, hit different when it comes to you. And there are, you know, things who are white Americans never really thought of until you have a black president, until, you know, within Texas, you have Governor Abbott's in a wheelchair. Until you have a governor in a wheelchair, there's certain things you wouldn't even think about how that would be for him being in a wheelchair. So mm -hmm. you're not going to equate the two things, but just that's it's a different thing to have a black president. And so um, there were going to be some things and he really could have been a uniting, unifying uh, figure, but he chose to pair talking points to the left and act, and act as if he didn't have a white mother. And act as if he didn't live in Hawaii, a place with a lot of racial harmony. Mm -hmm. um, and just to act like, you know, he just been living, you know, you know, I don't, I don't know, in some inner city urban area his whole life where he faced all this oppression when you lived in Hawaii and that wasn't your experience as a child. Um, it's a little bit disingenuous, you know, to me, but then, you know, politicians do what they do. So. Yeah, they sure do. And it, it's, you're absolutely right. He didn't grow up in the segregated South or anything like that. He lived in white schools and neighborhoods and was raised by a white family, which is fine with me. I don't care who his parents were. Um, but then you have people like who we, we were just talking about Thomas Sowell, Clarence Thomas, who, who grew up in the deep segregated South, um, you know, faced literal laws, 
you know, against them, making them not equal. And then of course, look at who they are, they are, what they achieved. Um, it's amazing. Um, the last area I want to want to talk about is your article called uh, vaccine hesitancy in the media narrative. I think I, I maybe you would agree these days, everything has to do with the narrative. Uh, they were talking about some kind of some undercover things with the New York Times and some papers like that. And they had some writers who have since left the New York Times explaining how, I mean, a year before, two years before, they map out, here's a narrative we're going to create, here's how we're going to get there. And then they just find stories and headlines, anything that feeds, this is the story we want you to have, this is the problem we're trying to create, and here's our supposed progressive you know, solution to those issues. And so I think even with vaccine hesitancy, you know, I mean, this year you can't read, I read the paper every day because I'm kind of old school, but you can't read a paper without, oh, you know, either, you know, apparently black people are the only people who have comorbidities <laughs> in the world, apparently that cause issues. Um, you know, of course, the vaccine, you know, of course, the uh, coronavirus is killing us much worse than everybody else. Of course, you know, our environment, our life, everything about it, you know, is somehow making us even more vulnerable to the coronavirus. Um, and just, you know, across the board, people, you know, even in other minority groups as well, but just really this laser focus on Black people. And then, of course, every article goes back to, but what about Tuskegee? That was horrible. It was bad. The government has admitted as such. It was a horrible situation. But to say that no Black people now trust any vaccines or any shots now because of Tuskegee experiment is, you know, is that, that really give us that little credit that we can't read the science mm -hmm. or, you know, read the, do the research and that we don't get, you know, chicken pox, muscles, these all those other, other shots that we may choose to get. Um, it's just kind of interesting to me how once again, and it goes back to more money. It just comes back to money as far, okay, we'll pay us to get the shot. Why aren't we getting the shot first? I know in our state, there was, you know, some issues about, you know, who should get it, senior citizens or other people. So, well, in some states, we're even saying maybe black people should get the shot first, you know, when they had a limited supply. And it's like, based on what? Not on age or, you know, people who have certain you know, comorbidities where it would be more advantageous to get it earlier. So, you know, even with that, I think the, the racial narrative was just injected into there so much. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I think a lot of stuff with the media and the progressives, there's such a, uh, what do they call it? The, um, the soft bigotry of low expectations mm -hmm. that apparently we need them to help us think about it, uh, to, to convince us to get it, that we can on our own, have no agency to be able to figure out whether this is a good idea, a bad idea, um, like every other race does, ethnicity does. Um, and so I think we said, even with that, the, the narrative was just so clear that there's a, there's a certain way they were trying to go with it. And that's the only story that was out there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a little, it does disservice just to black people that we can't somehow, you know, <laughs> think like everyone else and decide and weigh the pros and cons and decide what's best for us and our family. And that was kind of the main, I guess, kind of crux of that one. Yeah, no, that's so great. And remember that the, the left who thinks you don't know anything about uh, vaccines or, or you need extra help is the same group that thinks you don't have a driver's license, uh, that it's racist to ask you to have a driver's license to vote, right? <laughs> As though your black people don't know where to get a driver's license and the like. So, uh, you know, it, that's it's that's just always amazing to me. Um, so so Courtney, you go by the name uh, the cerebral conservative. That's what uh, um, that's what you go by. And um, and that's where people can find you. Uh, how did you come up with that name? And then share with us, if you would, uh, where people can find you and find these great articles. Uh, yeah, the cerebral conservative. 
uh, when I came up with the name, it wasn't so much that I was the cerebral conservative. It was more the idea that I think conservatives should be cerebral. You are thinking through things. You're not just blindly repeating things that you've heard. Um, you really thought through it. And there's a little more uh, nuance and context and balance needed. Um, things aren't always black and white and a little more thinking is needed. And so that was kind of the idea behind it. Um, as far as where you can find me, uh, the Cerebral Conservative uh, is the main my Facebook page. I'm on there a lot and pretty active. Um, like you, I also have a job and things to do, but I try to keep that uh, pretty fresh with different things. And then also on Instagram, Cerebral Conservative. And then I have a WordPress blog, just Cerebral Conservative uh, at WordPress. And you'll be able to find that there as well. Yep. No, it's excellent. So I'm connected to you on both uh, Facebook and Instagram. And um, you can get that WordPress um, site on the uh, on the Facebook page, you can go to that and get, that's where I got all the um, great articles. Uh, you've given me a lot of reading, uh, reading work to do once <laughs> I saw a lot of articles in there. So really great stuff. Uh, Courtney Montgomery, AKA the cerebral conservative, you got to check her out. You got to look at her stuff, connect with her on social media, uh, really great stuff. Um, wow. I, I loved every, all your answers and all your discussions were like, we're right on point all the way up to, um, admiring Thomas Sowell. So, um, uh, Courtney Montgomery, the Cerebral Conservative, thank you so much for being on uh, Fide's podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And thank all of you for joining me here as well for Courtney Montgomery, the Cerebral Conservative on Fide's podcast. You could uh, check me out on, on all the different podcast apps that are out there. I got lots of great, great, great episodes. Love these uh, conversations. If you or someone you know you think would be a great guest, let me know. Um, and check me out on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, feedacepodcast.com. Uh, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>